Hey everyone, this is Anna Firminov, and this is Modern Startup Marketing, a show that's shining a light on those startups that are taking their marketing efforts to the next level. And now to this episode. Rob Singer, I'm so excited to have you as my guest. Rob Singer is the CMO at Remitly. Remitly, which we'll talk about, it was founded in 2011 and has about 900 people. It's based out of Seattle, Washington, which is currently experiencing a downpour of rain, as I heard from Rob earlier. And on the funding side, they've been able to raise Series F, a total of, I think it's $85 million that was raised just this July 2020. So very recently, so exciting. It's growing. And so what is Remitly? Remitly is a fintech company that leverages digital channels, including mobile phones. So people can send money internationally. So essentially, it's faster, less expensive, and far more convenient. You can send money across borders. The focus then is really helping the millions of immigrants around the world who are sacrificing, leaving their families behind to live and work in another country. We see this all over the place. So I'm sure that no, nobody is a stranger to, to that sort of thing. So thank you. I'm so excited to have you come on to the show. Absolutely. Thank you. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here. So thank you for having me on. Wonderful. Well, let's go ahead and jump in because I have some pretty big questions to ask you. First, let's start with Remitly. I talked about it. I think it's a really awesome thing that you guys have that the founder has built and you guys are building on. Can you talk more about why you exist, who you're for, what problems you solve? Maybe something I did not cover. It's a really cool product, though. Awesome. Well, thank you. And thank you for the highly complimentary words. I, you know, we're, we're a heavily mission driven company. So, I mean, our, our mission is to really is to transform the lives of immigrants through providing the most trusted financial services on the planet. And we are heavily customer driven. And it's interesting, like we, when you walk, well, now if you metaphorically walk through the halls of Remitly, but certainly pre pre COVID walking through the halls of Remitly that that we really do put the customer in front of everything that we do. And it really has been the fact that we're the mission is, is central and core has really drawn a lot of us in. And that was a big draw for me to, to, to join Remitly. And so your intro of it was pretty spot on. I think that the only thing I would add is that we really are a financial services company more than just a remittance company. And so we were founded on global remittances. That is unquestionably the the core of our business but we do provide more than that in fact we just launched our banking product in 2020 it's called passbook by remitly and it is a deposit banking account that is designed specifically for immigrants and enables them to have a really strong banking relationship that can be really difficult in sort of the the big legacy banks today and so we are building a stack of financial services that are really aimed at serving this community. So it just happened to start with remittances. Awesome. And are you, I'm an immigrant. My family came here when I was five. Are you an immigrant too? And if so, like, where's your family from? I'm not personally a first generation immigrant. My family immigrated at the sort of the turn of the, the 20th century, mostly from Eastern Europe. So a lot of it was, we're Jewish and it was really 
escaping a lot of the, uh, the pogroms and a lot of the issues. So my family is basically from Russia, Ukraine, as well as Poland and Latvia. So. so I could see how there's some of that, right, as, as part of the mission. So you joined about two and a half years ago. What stage was the company in back then? Like, give me a sort of a snapshot, like what was going on with marketing back then? What were you working on then versus, you know, more focused on right now? Sure. So it's been about two and a half years and it, it is really interesting, you know, taking that walk through memory lane and, and going back to where things were two and a half years ago. So things have changed a lot. In fact, it's it's pretty amazing how much things have changed throughout the entirety of Remitly and certainly within the context of Remitly marketing. So when I joined, I joined at a, a time that is very typical for me. I like to join companies that are moving into transition. So I would say I'm not interested in babysitting or taking the company on a continued journey that for me, what's really interesting is these inflection points that I think naturally occur within companies. And so as you look at somewhat these general stages of how companies grow, you sort of have your startup phase and it takes a certain type of person to really get that product market fit to enable the company to get to its first, say, 10 million in revenue. And then you start to, to build and transform and really the the way the company needs to operate between say 10 and 100 million is very different than how it needs to operate from say 100 to 500 and, and so on. So I like to come in when companies are making a transition where what got us to point A is not what's going to get us to point B or to the, to the next phase. And so that's really where Remitly was when, when I came. And so to give you a little bit of history around how the company has grown, we work in what we call corridors. So a corridor is a send country and a receive country. So if you were sending money from the United States to the Philippines, that would be a corridor. U.S. to Philippines would be a corridor. U.S. to Mexico would be a second corridor. And so it was really smart how Remitly grew up. So it started off for its first couple of years sending money from the U.S. to the Philippines. And that was the only corridor that was supported by Remitly. And it it enabled the company to really focus on getting its service dialed in to really understand what it would take to thrive in that business. Once we got really good product market fit within U.S. to Philippines, we then moved to U.S. to India and U.S. to Mexico. And for a pretty long part of our history, those were the three corridors that it was called the big three. Those were the three corridors that we operated in. And so you can imagine that the company was very oriented around that. How do we have a marketing team for Mexico, marketing team for India, marketing team for the Philippines, where you could really focus in on marketing to those communities and, and getting the value propositions out for them. Well, all of a sudden we get a lot of traction and you realize that part of the value of having the service is you can scale that in a huge way. Like there's thousands and thousands of these corridors that exist. And so Almost overnight, we went from three corridors to 500 corridors. We just were able to turn on. We got the right traction because we had a big enough brand. We had a good enough reputation. We were able to establish the relationships that we needed to do. Well, you could imagine that the marketing team was not very well set up for that at all. Like It was not designed for scale. It was very much designed for how do we compete on a corridor by corridor basis. 
Can you talk a little bit about brand and how that helped you scale? What what were you guys doing to grow so fast? Like what was it that the team the marketing team was doing? So there's a couple of things that we did really well, which was we were able to through digital marketing channels really hone in on our target market, especially on channels like Facebook. So on Facebook, we were able to look at things like an expat variable to understand who in our markets were actually immigrants and immigrants that had recently immigrated. Great targets for us. And so we got really, we got really good at that, putting our, what I would call our functional value proposition in front of customers. So again, if you rewind a bit, it was really a disruption. You know, Remitly was one of the first disruptors of the what we call the brick and mortar remittance business. So you think about Western Union, you think about a lot of these other agent-based remittance companies. It was about going to an office, handing cash to an agent, and then they would deliver it onto the other side. Our ability to do this digitally changed the entire cost model, the convenience model. And I think that, especially from a pricing standpoint, we were able to we, and we still are, to be very clear, we are able to offer so much better. Our pricing is so much better for our customers. It's a much, much better value. And if you think about it, that's a big reason why we exist. Our purpose was to make sure that we wanted to make sure that as much money could make it back home. We That money shouldn't be going to fees to other areas. We wanted to maximize the amount of money that would be going home. And so our ability to message that to an audience that was already online because we were marketing to them digitally was was quite effective. Awesome. Okay, so it sounds like Facebook using some variables to really zero in on who your target audience is and that that they would really react to your your message on that channel. Your functional value prop, anything else that kind of was, you know, during those early days when you guys were just skyrocketing your growth, anything Um, else that was part of it? We can't forget Google, like, I would say that what we did was a really good job of demand capture. So people that were actively searching for digital solutions, we were very good at capturing that demand through those channels that were there. We were good at using Facebook more for mid-funnel, generating that level of awareness, but generating it to a population that was highly likely to move into bottom of the funnel that way. So I would say those worked really well for us. The other thing that we were able to do well with was certain facets of TV marketing. And so TV marketing in general still is not a great channel for us in general. It's not a, because it's not a mass market product. So our effective CPMs could be really high on just generalized networks. But as our first corridor really was US to Philippines, there's a channel called TFC, which is the the Filipino channel. And it is content that is created and distributed out of the Philippines, but into other countries. And so the idea was that in the US, when people were immigrating from the Philippines, that was a huge channel for them to consume media and stay closer to home. So advertising on a channel like that was not only cost-effective, but highly, highly impactful for us because it was getting to our target market. Oh my gosh, yes, absolutely. We immigrated from Russia and still to this day, the Russian radio is on... The Russian TV at the grandma's house is on. Like, absolutely. <laughs> that never goes away for, for folks. Wonderful. Okay, so I understand now, like, what you guys were working on and what was really effective back then. Can you tell me, like, what what does your marketing team look like right now? Who is, who's on there? So it looks unrecognizably different today because we have 
really architected this now for scale and best practices. So I would say that the team, again, was highly oriented around sort of being the jack of all trades for within the context of your corridor. So we had a team that was focused on doing all facets of marketing for the Philippines or a team that was for all facets of marketing for Mexico. But what we didn't have were somebody that grew up as a creative director and has been a professional creative director for their career or somebody who has led growth and channel teams. And so what we did was we we looked at what we needed to do and what we needed to do was architect for scale. And so that included not just bringing in the right systems, technology tools, because the big part of it was that sort of infrastructure that will enable us to scale and, and market to an unlimited number of corridors in a way that is just as effective. But we need to bring in the right team that had the right experience of working at that level. So what I would say is the big difference today is that our hiring strategy was around hiring best-in-class marketers who had focused on building a career functionally more so than anything else. So today, we're not built around corridors, we're built around functions. So Rena leads our, what we call our growth team. And that, our growth acquisition, there's any number of names for what her team does, but her team is responsible essentially for managing all of our marketing channels. So all of our acquisition channels, both digital as well as offline. And then she's also responsible for all of our lifecycle marketing channels. So as customers come in and make their first transaction and become a customer of Remitly, how do we incubate that relationship so that Remitly is the, we want to be the only remittance provider for our customers. We don't, you know, so she manages all of those channels. Um, so everything from broad-based marketing channels to bottom of the funnel channels, all the way to email, in-app messaging, all of that. We've got Kathy, who she is our, our head of brand. And so she's responsible for all the functions within brand. So brand marketing, brand management, all the way through to the entire creative team, our consumer insights team reports up to that, our program management teams report in. We produce content. So we have a very active blog. We do a lot of customer profiling, a lot of customer highlighting. That is one designed to really showcase our customers and showcase how Remitly works with that. It's also obviously a great conduit for things like SEO and all of our other programs for that. So that reports up through our brand team under Kathy. We do most of our creative production as well in-house. So she's got a full production team that reports into her. Then we have our we call it product marketing, which is not a misnomer in what the team does. It team very much functions like a product marketing team, but it's there's always the question of, well, what are your products? Like we have a, you know, we have Passbook, which is a fledgling product, but then we have our, our core. The way that we've always looked at the business is that each of these corridors in many ways is a discrete product. So our strategy for Latin America is going to be very different than our strategy within Southeast Asia or our strategy within South Asia. And so essentially what we've done is we've set up a product marketing team that is responsible for our regional marketing strategies. And so they pull together working in, in collaboration with the growth team and the brand team. How do we go to market in Latin America? Which are the main corridors we should focus in on? What are the reasons to believe that ladder up to our brand promise that are reflected within each of these specific communities? How do we find these communities? When we talk about community-based marketing, 
like where do these communities live in all the various send countries that we send out of? And how do we engage with them in a way that makes Remitly a part of those communities, which is going to be very different if you think about it from region to region. And so we have a product marketing team that ladders in to create those strategies. We've got a marketing analytics team that reports up to Michael that we're a heavily data-driven company. You can probably imagine that when we're trying to optimize around things like unit economics and all the rest of it through thousands of corridors, having a really strong analytics backbone behind all of that is critical. Lastly, we have Vomsi's team, which is our marketing platforms team. So as I mentioned, one of the big pushes that we did two and a half years ago was making sure that we had the right tools and infrastructure to support and manage that. And so Vomsi's team is responsible for managing that infrastructure and, and the platform and continuing to evolve it as our needs get more complex. How do you do it? Like there is so much going on at this company and I'm used to thinking and actually really just talking to series B companies, series A companies, we're talking like huge and there are all these teams and there are all these corridors and I'm just like, oh my gosh, how? And then the culture, right? You got to, you're hiring people. It's 900 people now. How do you do it? How are you making sure that you're like every day, do you wake up? Do you have a list? Do you look at key performance indicators and have like five of them? Or do you meet like five times a week? What's your secret? (laughs) To say it's easy would be false, but in fairness, this is what I love. I love highly complex some marketing situations like this. this I, I tend to gravitate towards those. So I really enjoy it. So there's a couple of things that you mentioned that hold true. So one, I generally get a lot of pushback for this, but I don't care. I update our numbers every morning. I have my own tracking spreadsheet that I run. And what I've always found, so in you know full disclosure, my background is at, is as an analyst. I have a very weird background for a CMO, to be fully honest, which I actually think has been very key and and central to my success because I don't actually know how to do anybody's job on my team except for maybe marketing analytics. So one thing that I've always found is that actually interacting with the numbers is more important than looking at the numbers. That I've always said that marketers need to know their numbers. And especially if you go to board meetings or anything like that. I like having my numbers seared into my mind because those are where a lot of the questions come in. And so, yes, I have a spreadsheet by our major corridors and our major regions that I personally update that gives me monthly projections every morning. That's how I spend the first 20 minutes of my morning is updating my spreadsheets. And it just keeps me very close to the business. And when I need to ask questions, it I just have it right in front of me like, oh, that is off. I need to ask some questions about that. So there's that piece of it. The second thing is that the marketing structure that we've created actually, even though it in some ways accentuates the complexity of the business, was set up so that it enables the business to run pretty fluidly or minimally the marketing team to run pretty fluidly because I know that through Rena, I have her team, which involves all of her channel managers and Rena, that every day are looking at their numbers within their channels. And I talk to Rena every day. And if there's anything that is that I need to know, anything that's going on, we just have 
I know about it very quickly and I can see it in some of these metrics that pop up in the morning, whether CAC is up or whether we're having, usually if, if something is, is going funny in one of our corridors, we might have had an issue with one of our channels or if something's going funny in the right way, you know, we had an unlock that, that showed up there. And then the, that the other view I have is through Katrina and her product marketing team. She mentioned earlier, Katrina runs that group and she, they are keeping their finger on the pulse of, of our regions. And the reality is that not all corridors are created equal. So we're managing to thousands of corridors, but there are some of these corridors that are extremely small and then some of them that are extraordinarily strategic for us. So one of the tools that we have through Katrina's team is a corridor prioritization framework where we have focus corridors, we have these emerging corridors that we think have a lot of upside that we need to incubate. Then we have our long tail corridors that we can really bucket into some of these programs that we look at more like a portfolio than as individuals. And so therefore, the ones, the co- number of actual corridors that we need to track on a day-to-day basis is, is much smaller than the thousands that are there. Honestly, like the secret sauce is that I build teams around me that are absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, I think it it comes both from a from philosophy. No one buys into the philosophy of hire people that know way more than you do, more than I do. Like, anyone that's managing teams, your value comes in in that. Like being the dumbest person in the room is is a sign of a good manager, in my opinion. But it's also come out in terms of necessity because I didn't grow up as a... Mar- my, my first job as a marketer was as a CMO. And so therefore, I've never bought media. I've never managed a channel. I've never produced creative. I've never sent an email. I have to rely on, on the team from an execution standpoint. And so... I only want the best of the best. And I sleep very, very, very well at night because of that. Do you ever worry though, because you weren't in the trenches that you're going to miss something or that somebody might be sliding something past you or do you not because you specifically hired people that are really proud of their craft. And so they would never do something like that. I'd say it's a combination of a few things. So one is I do have implicit trust for my team and that's, I, I pretty heavily index on that side of it, just open communications and trust. The other thing is that I feel like my job kind of in many ways has three components to it. And just because it's the first time you've met me, that doesn't mean three things are going to come out of my mouth. It could end up being five. So one, I'd say one of the best pieces of advice or probably the best piece of advice I ever got was from Tim Sullivan. He was the CEO of Ancestry when I was working there. And when they moved me into the CMO role there, he said, look, your number one job at the end of the day, you're the head of HR for marketing. And if you think of yourself as the head of HR for marketing, everything is going to be just fine. That is great advice. And so how do you hire, retain, and engage world-class talent? Like that's what he meant by that. And, And so facet number one is massive focus on that. Two is creating a vision that is audacious enough to inflect and yet believable enough that it, it really can inspire people to do more than they that, than they even think is capable. And the last thing on that is ensuring that you're asking the right questions by having the right frameworks that enable you to ask the right questions. And so that is really how I think about my day. I think about my day in terms of the team 
and making sure they they have what they need to be successful and happy and are having fun and they're a world-class team. Like the team facet of it is one of the harder things I think for people to get used to, which is I'm not interested in individual glory and I'm not interested in the person that comes in here and is the all-star player that is really all focused on them. Like team players are the ones that do very well on my teams because we share the credit, we share the glory, we do all of those things that drive it that way. Keeping us focused on where we're going. Like I'm always trying to think of, you know, we had a meeting today where we were talking about December results. And I'm like, my brain is in February and March. Like I, December's done. Like I already know, like I can read about December. I don't want to talk about December. Like how do you make sure that the team is prioritizing the most important things and are on top of that? So that is usually what my check-ins, one-on-ones, the rest of it are like, how are we tracking for March? Like, how are we doing? Are we really doing the right things? Are we doing that? Or is the urgent getting in the way of the important? Or are we actually focusing on the right things? And then making sure that the decisions that I need to be involved in, and I'm pretty explicit about those. I don't want to be involved in the day-to-day decisions of the team. I fully, fully trust my team to make those. But for the ones that are, are the important decisions that I need to be a part of, I view it as my job to ask questions, not give feedback. And after a while of doing that, you begin to realize that if you just ask the right questions, you can kind of suss out where people have been thinking about things the right way or where they're just trying to gloss over stuff or they cut corners or whatnot. And so ask a question and then be quiet. Let people talk, give them the space, right? Like, and it's a really, it's really hard thing to do, but at the end of the day, like I'm far luckier than I am good, but I, I try to create luck by making sure that I surround myself with the right people because with the right people, your luck amazingly gets a lot better. This is fascinating because the the conversations that I am hearing and, and I have these is, is like, if you're not deep in the weeds, then you're not really doing your job and you got to get down there and do it with everybody on your team. But there's something to be said about like somebody needs to just step out of the thick of things and have a high level view and help people prioritize, which, by the way, is really difficult, especially when you have all this stuff going on. And then also, I feel like that's your superpower. You need to do that as well as like get into the data every morning, like you said, 20 minutes, spend time there and then figure out exactly like who do you need to talk to because the, the numbers are showcasing that, you know, there, there's an issue somewhere or not, or like have some some celebrations because something's going really, really well. So. Yep. Has there ever been a time where the data is telling you something, but the data isn't telling you the right story? And you're like, oh, I can't always rely on this data. I, I need This is actually the opposite of what's happening. That is a really, really interesting question. I'll answer it this way, and, and you can keep me honest if I'm not answering your actual question here. So I think there's a couple of things that absolutely happen because I see something and there's usually a coin flip as to whether or not I'm actually diagnosing a problem or I'm totally wrong. So that is that's why that's such a great question. But typically it is because of a couple of things. One is incomplete data. So I'll give you an example from, from our business, which is always, it's an interesting facet. Every business has tailwinds and headwinds for whatever reason, right? And so I will be looking at a downward trend in corridor X and I will be like, 
what is going on here? Like we were doing great and I am seeing, all I'm seeing is in downward trend. We should be growing. What's going on here? And the reality is like, well, because that is a highly FX sensitive corridor. We have some corridors that exchange rate volatility means nothing. Like, because they're typically corridors where people are either sending, they're sending money home for, that is what is paying the mortgage. It's what's paying for food, it's paying for school. And I need to send my $200 every two weeks and it does not matter. Like, I'm not gaming FX. I'm just sending recurringly because my family needs it. And they're usually lower dollar, high frequency transactions. But we have some that are not. Like people that are sending significant amounts of money and they're highly FX sensitive. And so in some of those corridors, if I'm not paying enough attention to the exchange rate, which is usually something I'm not paying close enough attention to, there is usually a reason why I'm seeing what I'm seeing. And when we run some sort of algorithm against it, you'd actually show that like we're growing because of, you know, if you were to factor in all of the causal factors that are outside of our control, we're actually doing quite good in that corridor. So that's one example of having incomplete data that doesn't show, show that story. There are other times too where context is really important. And I should also be better about this. So, but we all have room to improve on some of these things. But like context can be very important where I'll say, I'm focusing on such negative things, but it could also be very positive where I am seeing trend X and I'm intrigued. Why are we seeing that? That's that's not fitting my gut as to where we should be. And it could literally be, well, sometimes it's very positive. Like the holidays for this, like one of the main holidays for Vietnam actually happens to fall in this month. And what we're seeing is how, like, this is like a pretty seasonal trend that we see. And I'll say, well, I, I get that, but I didn't see it last year. Like I'm looking at the year over year comps and we're flying. And why are suddenly we flying this month versus last month? And then they can be like, well, we didn't have these three partners spun up last year. So we didn't, weren't even marketing in this corridor. And you should know this. Like, yes, I should know this. Thank you very much. Like we're all good. As well as sometimes you just have seasonal lulls here and there. So a lot of it really is more around having incomplete data. Sometimes the data is not a data source like exchange rate, right? And so we have certain corridors where fraud is a major issue, whether it's, you know, a big reason why there, a lot of the big banks don't participate and do global remittance. Global remittance is really, really, really hard. I, Matt, Josh, Shabas, I can't give them enough credit for overcoming how hard it is to do this right. And it is highly regulated. You have anti-money laundering. And so we have things called unwanted activity, whether it's fraud, anti-money laundering, any of these things. There's some horrible things that people do. And so there are corridors where this is far more prevalent than others. And if suddenly your brand gets big enough, a lot of these predators will try to jump onto your brand to do highly illicit things. And so you'll see sort of the business go up and then you'll see it, the bottom completely fall out. And it's because we've had to either shut something down or we've had to do something to prevent these from happening draconianly before we can do it in a way that allows the really good customers to come through while filtering out the really bad ones. And so there are times for sure that 
I see heavily leading indicators that once you engage in the conversations, you begin to get the right context on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is so fascinating. And I am totally going off script here, but I have another question for you. And I'm curious, I would be doing a disservice if I didn't dig a little deeper on this. The numbers that you look at every morning for 20 minutes, you mentioned CAC. <laughs> what else is like big in terms of like what's on that sh spreadsheet? Yeah. I'm curious. I'm sure people are curious. And one of my previous companies that was a startup, we did similar things. We, I mean, it was in a different space. It was delivering food for employees during lunch. And, and we would update a spreadsheet with the numbers and yep. look at specific things. So curious, what numbers are you looking at? Sure. The three raw metrics that I really pay close attention to on a daily basis are called NCA, new customers acquired. So how many new customers did we acquire? And then I look at that broken down in certain ways, you know, different businesses, then different regions, different corridors, areas like that. So not first and foremost, how many new customers did we acquire yesterday? Critical piece of information for me. And then underneath that, how much did we pay? Like that's where CAC comes in. So we just to, again, to be really transparent, CAC, I look at CAC because I can translate things in my head from a macro standpoint. We actually use payback as our main marketing efficiency metric because CAC, our unit economics are different in every corridor. So we have a thousand different unit economics that we're measuring to. So a CAC of X in one corridor can be amazing and it can absolutely be unacceptably bad in another corridor. And so I know aggregately how it should look and how it should all play out at the end. So I look at CAC just to make sure that everything is, is nothing spiked or changed overnight and then transactions. So the pieces that I put together monthly are monthly active users. Like how many people are on our app, unique users, like that needs to be going up and to the right constantly because monthly active users turns into transactions. That's where our transactions and volumes come in. And that is, that is our revenue model. We make revenue on transactions. And so I keep a very, very close look at how transactions are trending. And then the leading indicator of how the health of the business is new customers. Like, are we constantly bringing new customers in? We are not a subscription model, right? This isn't Ancestry or Netflix where you bring a user in and then they stack up. You know, you can just stack it up over time because they subscribe and you can run your churn rates. But the dynamics of our business almost mirror that of a subscription model because people transact and you bring in a customer, we, we don't pay back on that first transaction because we know they're going to be transacting for years with us. So it's a lifetime value model. We need to keep our finger on the pulse of the transactions to make sure that we're generating the volumes we want. We continue to have really high customer quality. That's a, that's a big, you know, is our product adding enough value that people are, are using us over time to meet that. So I take those three, I plug those into spreadsheets. And the big things that I look for are year-over-year -year growth and trends against that. And so I essentially have last year's numbers by day juxtaposed by for day of the week. So we have day of the week seasonality. And then I just look, and if I see that cumulatively we've been growing at X percent in a corridor and suddenly we have something that's wildly off. Now I know I have some questions to ask, or I should, I'll just intuitively expect that to happen sometimes. But those are the three big ones that I look at on a day-to-day -day basis. And then obviously monthly, we look at other metrics as well. Thank you. I 
Super appreciate that. I know folks listening in may be in similar type of businesses and they, and I always love to ask and, and hear something that's not, you don't need a lot of numbers. You don't need to track a lot. You don't need to spend a lot of time on this. As long as you have like, this is what matters. As long as you have your three key pieces there and then you're looking at the the year over year or the month over month and, and seeing like what's happening and asking questions, that's really what you need to keep a pulse on your data. So that's lovely. Thank you. Okay. Coming back to what the questions I actually was planning to ask you, what's working really well for you in, in the marketing realm? Like what teams are just like spot on chugging along? What channels maybe you can talk to a couple? One of the things is that this team has matured a lot. So, you know, we went on this journey two and a half years ago and thankfully, 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 like, We've been able to build this team and it's been, we've been adding a lot of new incredible members. And a lot of my leadership team has been on board for this period of time. Like for, we've been together now for a while and that in and of itself is starting to pay massive dividends that it's a complicated business. It's a complicated model and having key people and key positions that have now been here for two plus years, I can't tell you how important that has been. And that part is working incredibly well. From a more tactical standpoint, it's been interesting. For me, it's been fun just to see sort of the transformation of the industry. And that it's really gone from micro-targeting and getting really in-depth of that to we really have turned over a lot of our targeting to the machine learning algorithms of our publishers, right? So one of the big things that has worked well for us is Google's UAC, Universal App Campaign. So one of the big value propositions we have as a company is our app. So even a lot of our digital competitors have put a lot more focus on their web presence. Well, when I started, we were changing our mindset into being an app-first company. We've now really been transforming our mindset into being an app company. Like, no, we're an app company, not just app-first. We're an app company. We want people on on our app. And so we were able to tap into UAC at a pretty nascent stage for them in a way that a lot of our competitors didn't do. And the way UAC will basically just, they push your message in front of what they, what they have learned to be your right target through all of the Google properties. So it's amazing. It'll be on YouTube. It'll, it'll be in display ads. It'll be where, where Google knows that your users are. And so we were getting, it took us a while, but we've gotten a lot more comfortable with leveraging our publisher's machine learning instead of us trying to override it with our own. And what it has enabled us to really do is focus in on the the brand and the value and cutting through. So, you know, really we, we have been moving a lot from static marketing to video. Video is so critically important to us now. So Kathy and team have just done this phenomenal job of actually having a brand vision for this company and then building out a creative strategy that has been enabling us to cut through an incredibly crowded marketplace with unbelievable creative and, and a compelling brand message. Tell me more about that. Like what, what is the creative that you're pushing and that's really resonating? I hope I'm not offending anybody at Remitly by saying this, but my joke when I first came in was like, oh, I didn't realize we were in financial services. I thought we were a flag company. Because all of our creative was this static flag. It would have like a U.S. flag. It was static creative. It would be like a, 
US flag and a Philippines flag with an exchange rate on it. That was our creative strategy. It was a pricing strategy. And like, I was like, that's going to create a race to the bottom. There's nothing, nothing personal about it. You're not connecting with an, a human being. It was a flat, we were a flag company. Like, that's what I always used to say. Today, Kathy was like, we are about people. Our vision is about people. Our company is about people. Our employees work here because we care so deeply about helping our target, like our customers. Our customers are center to everything. Like I am so proud of working for this company because of our customer centricity, yet we never shared a customer and a human being in a single one of our ads. And it was like the disconnect (laughs) was just unbelievable. Kathy and I have worked at four companies together now. She's literally the best brand person I've ever met. And she's one of the best people I've ever met too. But like her ability to find the essence of what a company and a brand is about and then putting that out. And so our brand positioning is around peace of mind. Because if you think about the entire journey of which you can really think about because you know, you've gone on that journey, like it's scary. And you're talking about sending money a long way for critical, critical needs. And that money has to get there. When you talk to our customers, that's what they're looking for, the peace of mind. They know that that money is going to get there and they know that as much of it is going to get there and it's going to get there quickly and safely and easily. And so we've now been building our brand around being the company that brings peace of mind. And our creative has human beings in it and showing the human connection and our marketing strategy has always been, has started to become about that. Like we've talked about our digital channels, but some of the big breakthroughs now have been community marketing. Like our customers actually live in condensed zip code areas, right? So I know the dynamics have changed quite a bit, but for a while, like 85% of all immigrants from the Dominican Republic lived in Washington Heights, New York. And so why are we not part of the Washington Heights community? Like if we want to make progress, we can be visible in a, in a high dense way. And we can actually show that we are more than just getting mm-hmm. people's transactions, which two flags and an exchange rate feels like, give me your transactions. And our ability to connect mm-hmm. has built this brand that has enabled us to stand above. And, you know, we've talked about some of our competitors' brands and some of them have been very, I think they've done a great job, but they've been doing a great job functionally, not emotionally. And, you know, something that I hold very deep in terms of my philosophy is that marketing has a very strong analytics backbone, but it is that intersection of being analytic with connecting, with human emotion, with actually having that connection with your customers. And I, I, I feel like I see a lot of brands do that. They, they build these great brands around a function but they don't actually connect to what that function is doing and emotionally moving. And I feel like that has been working incredibly well for us right now, because now, especially with video, we have a format by which we can be highly emotive, yet at the same time being extraordinarily clear about why somebody should engage with remotely. And we now have the channels that enable us to do that because so much has been moving to video that is so 
that's fascinating to hear. And I love how you brought in the, the early stage story and like how the creative was back then and how you changed it. And now that it's, it's very emotive and you're using video to create these connections and, and show, showcasing that it's really a company that gives peace of mind. And that's something that you can connect to emotionally. So brand, mm-hmm. how important is it early stage? Like, when do you need to build out the brand? Is it necessary when you're seed funded series A what do you think? Like, should you wait until Series C? So, like, when's the right moment to start building up that brand? That is a great question. My personal opinion, and having been in both startups and in bigger companies, my advice would always be no. That in some ways, you discover your brand through your customer. And to me, like, you should be ruthlessly, ruthlessly focused on product market fit as a startup. And you should be ruthless about understanding who your real target market is and understanding what are the facets of your value proposition that are resonating with them and how do you get feedback and usage and start to build a critical mass of people. And so you know you have a product and you have an audience. I think the dirty little secret sometimes is you don't. And actually was talked to, he was a professor, I think at USC at Southern Cal, And he always was like, yeah, like we always advise people to just get your product out. And if you've built this entire business case around selling dresses and you open a store with dresses and all of your accessories are flying out the door, but none of your dresses are flying out the door, congratulations. Because I do remember your business plan said you were an accessories company, right? Because you don't know, like you don't know what facet of your business is really going to resonate until you're, you're there. And then once you get a critical mass of customers, that to me is where you start to build out your brand because then you can find out what the values are. Like, what are you overcoming? Like, if you think of every company as being a utility and you're always solving a problem for a customer, what are the problems that you're trying to solve? And then what is the the emotion that comes from that? So like really, even at Ancestry, we were pretty, pretty big at that point before we went on a hard branding and develop the brand that most people now see today as Ancestry, go into that Wayback Machine or whatever they call it, where you can see websites from whenever. Like, you know, if you look at like sort of 2010, 2011, 2012 Ancestry, it looked nothing like, you know, how we re-architected the brand because it was really kind of at that point that we felt like now we can go build a brand in the family history space that is not about like the world's largest family history resource, which it was when I first started in Ancestry. And now it's discover your story because that's actually what people were getting. That was the value people were getting at Ancestry. So I would say I've watched a lot of companies spend a lot of time trying to build a brand with no customers and they ended up burning through a lot of capital. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. No, I was just curious to to get your take on it. The company's bigger. There's definitely, you know, critical mass now. And you've really put in a lot of effort and and with the team building out this brand. So just was interested in in what your thoughts were. And you started talking about Ancestry. You've been CMO a number of times at different size and funded companies. How does your approach to marketing change when when you're at, for example, you were at Habit, you were at Ancestry, different size companies, right? Like what stays the same and what's different? How do you think about your, your role there? The company size that I started at Remitly and am at now is that's my comfort zone far more than what Habit. I loved going to Habit. I've loved going to and working with startups of various sizes. Um, so 
my sweet spot is like getting past that side of it. Kind of to what we were just talking about, I think the things that are different are, one, it is a ruthless focus on product market fit and understanding the channels, understanding what the metrics need to be. Like, how do I, as cheaply as possible, get my brand in front of as many people as possible so I can get as many customers as possible and learn and learn and learn. And it is all about quick evolution and it is about understanding that you're going to have to extrapolate your numbers. Like you can run an A-B test, but if you sell 10 and six, it's like, you're just going to have to go with it. Like it's really hard to get to statistical significance and be really rigorous. You have to really rely sometimes on your gut and like understand what you're seeing and trust it and go. The iterations are much faster and you need to be like far more flexible and casting a much bigger net in my opinion. The other thing that is very different is really the approach to staffing at much, much smaller companies. There are, I like using small boutique agencies, people that I, many ways that I know, they can just take over the accounts. They can build your Google account. They can build your Facebook account. They can rapidly, rapidly iterate on creative. And we're talking literally like three person, three, five person shops where they become basically your acquisition, your marketing team. And I find that they're extremely agile and they're willing to take much bigger chances and they can help you get to that product market fit in a way that also enables you to have a lot more flexibility from a cash standpoint, since you usually are not super well-funded at that point. I would say, so my approach to the team, my approach to how quickly you test, it's all bottom of the funnel stuff at that point. I'd say the things that remain the same is the fact that you have a destination like you're, you're rigorous about having a vision, having a roadmap, having a plan, having a strategy. Like it can't just be firing from the hip. You have got to be able to have a level of predictability as to where you're going so that we're all going down the same path together. And I do think that the level for quality and the human beings that you're working with, you can never compromise on that. And I also think that's another reason why I feel like when a company gets to the stage where Mitley was at two and a half years ago, now I can really start to go and bring the Kathy Scows and the Rena Hans into the picture. You can't when you're a Series A startup. You, you don't bring in VPs. You're bringing in much, much, much more junior channel managers to get things off the ground. And what I have found is that your money, I would rather pay the same amount of money for 30% of this person's time who is the best of the best of finding product market fit than teaching somebody relatively junior who does not know all the tricks of the trade that having that sort of experience, like you really have to think through how you're spending your money. And I've always just found that the return on investment to spend more money on really, 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 really good people is always there. It's just always there in the story and you just can't compromise on it. I love it. This is the, these are the nuggets. This is why I do what I do with this podcast. Thank you so much. Like you, you have this experience, you've got this expertise and I love that you're just throwing it all down here. And some things are just kind of not even in that document that I shared with you. So uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Rob. I would ask you more questions, but I am very, you know, cautious of your time. I know you've got a lot going on and some kiddos there in the back. So thank you so much. If anybody wants to reach out to Rob, they can do so on LinkedIn, Rob Singer. Mm -hmm. And to find out more about Remitly, you can visit remitly.com. Thank you so much again, Rob, for taking the time. That was just like, whoo, I learned a lot from you. Thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day and a great weekend. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Modern Startup Marketing. New episodes are dropping regularly, so make sure you're following wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Anna Firminov, or visit my website, firminovmarketing.com.